Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Dr. Peter Grinspoon, and he is a primary care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also an instructor at Harvard Medical School. He's also an author. We're going to find out a little bit more about his book, and he has a long and interesting connection to cannabis. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And he is also part of a board member of the advocacy group Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and we're going to talk uh, about that as well. So a multifaceted program. I'm really excited about this. Uh, with that, Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So why don't we actually start with Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and we can kind of use that as a departure point, and we can talk about um, the history and the insight you have around cannabis from both a personal and a medical professional point of view. But what is Doctors for Cannabis Regulation? Talk to us a little bit about the organization and, and what it is focused on. Doctors for Cannabis Regulation is a fantastic advocacy group that was founded by um, Dr. David Nathan, and he's a, a psychiatrist and addiction specialist in New Jersey, and it is focused on legalization of cannabis under the assumption that whether you're pro, neutral, or anti-cannabis, legalization is 
much safer than prohibition for a whole variety of reasons, which we can get into. But it's really focused on legalizing and regulating cannabis in a safe way to protect public health and safety, with the assumption, again, being that legalization with safe and intelligent regulation would be a much better way to go than prohibition, locking people up, having the black market, you know, um, criminals be in charge of distributing cannabis is much safer if you legalize and regulate. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not necessarily sort of pro-cannabis or pro-cannabis use. It's really focused on let's get the industry into a regulated, controlled, monitored situation so we can actually see what is happening with the industry. We can look at its use. We can we can put some guidelines, uh, actually develop some research and stuff around it. That that's It sounds like that's really the goal for DFCR, as, as we say, uh, the acronym, rather than really saying, hey, these are doctors that promote uh, or are pro-cannabis use necessarily. Absolutely. And as physicians, we don't think that cannabis should be in the criminal justice category. It should be in the health, safety, and regulation category. It's just in the wrong box. So we're trying to get it in the proper, uh, you know, kind of uh, arena in society so that we can, you know, um, have people use it anyways. The war on drugs doesn't stop anybody from using cannabis. But when it's legal, the product that they use is safe. You don't have you know, cartels and gangs dealing it and providing it, you have a product that's, you know, tested and screened and you have um, taxes that you uh, garner and you just have it. um, It's much safer uh, and and sensible for society. So again, we're not pro-cannabis, we're pro-legalization and regulation. It's a much more sensible way to address this than putting people in cages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I guess as a physician, uh, as a doctor, what when you look at the legalization process and, and you're in Massachusetts, which is now legalized uh, or adult adult use and uh, medical use state, because what are, what are the factors that you're looking at or the aspects of policy that you're most interested in from, you know, from a medical point of view as states uh, and, at, and at some point as a, from a federal level, we look at the legalization process. What are the concerns or what are the, the facets that you're looking at? Well, different physicians and different contingencies or constituencies seem to have different concerns. Everybody's concerned with, you know, impaired driving, though we don't really have a good metric or way to uh, determine that. And you certainly don't want to use a bad metric. A lot of the prohibitionists are saying 30% of drivers (laughs) have cannabis in their system, which is such a, um, you know, specious argument because... It lasts in your your blood for or urine for three weeks. So that doesn't mean anything. That just means they're testing for it and there's more honesty about use or transparency, but it doesn't have anything to do with intoxication. We're looking to protect, you know, adolescents from using it because we're concerned about the effect on adolescent brain development, even though a lot more study and research needs to be done. But uh, adolescent use seems to be very stable and it's been wildly exaggerated again by people who are against legalization. It it seems like if anything, um, in some states, the the adolescent use has been declining, but we are concerned about that. Um, Everybody wants to lessen the black market, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. because that's just, um, you know, if you buy legally, no one will sell to a minor and the product will be clean without pesticides, fungus, heavy metals, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people are criticizing legalization in the states where it's legal because the black market hasn't been eliminated. But without legalization, the black market's 100% <laughs> of the market. So exactly. that seems to me to be a, a silly argument as well. But, you know, 
marijuana, like all, I consider it a medicine and Mm -hmm. like all medicines, it's not entirely safe. Yeah. Pregnant woman and breastfeeding woman shouldn't use it. Certainly until it is studied more. Yeah. And, you know, again, the driving thing and the adolescent um, use, these are, these are concerns and these are the things we watch out for. And, you know, legalizing something is complex. There are a lot of complex policy ramifications. So this is something that we're figuring it out. And each state that legalizes it is doing it in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be things that could be done better. And, you know, it's sort of like um, a lab where people are trying to figure out how to work out the social justice component, yep. uh, how to involve minorities and people who have been disproportionately harmed by this insane war on drugs that we've yeah. had for the 40 years. And there's also, in my opinion, a very complex dynamic between, you know, the research has been very biased. They've NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, has only funded research into the negative aspects of cannabis and not into the positive aspects. So if you're trying to establish that something's negative and then you do $10 billion worth of studies into whether or not it's harmful, you're going to find some stuff. But the question is, how valid is that if you have an a priori hypothesis that it's negative and then you're using your research dollars to prove that? So sort of feel like it's sort of like the baseball player who has a home run record but was on steroids. There's like an asterisk by it. Yeah. So I think we need to sort of figure out how much of this research is valid. And there's also the problem that like there's two completely different non-communicating narratives about cannabis. There's like the cannabis community, mm-hmm. which believes that they're using it medicinally and that it's helping them recreationally. Then there's like the addiction psychiatry community that um, thinks doesn't seem to be able to conceptualize recreational or medical cannabis, and they put it all under the rubric of pathology. And I think that they over pathologize this, but there needs to be more what I call cannabis common ground. There's got to be a way to (laughs) sort of link or at least bring these two conversations a little bit closer together. So, you know, a lot of challenges. It's interesting. It's interesting time to be involved in this issue. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I mean, both as, um, I mean, I think from, um, you know, the podcast we focused on, you know, a lot around the business and, you know, everything from kind of cultivation to dispensing practices to, you know, consulting services. Um, but I think what is kind of gets underrepresented is re- a real kind of discussion of the the medical, you know, kind of application or the medical facets uh, of this, because it is, you know, like, like any drug, there's kind of pros and cons to it, or there's applications and there's side effects. And I think your discussion of the research side is fascinating to me just because it, ha- it does seem like the the data that we have is both extremely limited and quite biased. And, you know, I'm quite curious about how, what the future or what a future might look like where we've got better data and insight into you know, the actual kind of application and, and use, you know, side effects, uh, you know, positive benefits of I mean, when you look at the actual kind of research side of it, what needs to happen to start to create some of this data? I mean, you mentioned that we've got some data, but it's quite biased. How do we get more better, more kind of neutral or balanced understanding of, of this drug, of this, of this product? Well, the good news is that it's happening in Israel, Canada and Europe. The bad news is that it's not happening as quickly in this country, the United States, as it could be because it's still Schedule 1 in the Controlled Substance Act. Yeah. We need to legalize cannabis, remove the restrictions, and then there are like people are chomping at the bit to do this research. It's starting to happen. A lot of people are starting to do it, but I think what will really accelerate it if, is if we 
you know, it's like safer, far safer than alcohol or tobacco. Nobody can argue that it isn't. And it's it's regulated in the same category as like, you know, a methamphetamine yeah. and LSD with the Controlled Substance Act. So we just need to get it, you know, legalized and again, regulated as per what we were working on with doctors per cannabis regulation. And it'll be a lot easier to study. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about why you're interested in this or why you focus on cannabis. I know that you're an author and the book is Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. And it's also a memoir. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that experience, how that experience has kind of impacted or guided your approach or philosophy around cannabis. And I know you have some personal history that that actually gives you some insight into the use of cannabis. So why don't we talk about those and I'll let you decide which one you want to talk about first and how they fit together. Because I think it does, it, it creates a really interesting perspective, I, I think you have in, in terms of uh, cannabis, not only as, well, both as a physician, as a doctor, but also as, you know, someone who's who's seen the immediate kind of impact or application of, of cannabis in different ways. So I'll, I'll let you decide how you want to, how you want to talk about it, but I would love to hear that story. Absolutely. Well, first the memoir, I, you know, Physicians are under a lot of distress these days. There's a big epidemic of burnout. And I unfortunately succumbed to a pretty severe opiate addiction. This is unrelated to the whole cannabis stuff. So I'll make yeah. it a brief tour. And I recovered. I'm 11 years in recovery from opiate addiction. And the whole issue of physicians and addiction is a taboo subject. Yeah. And there's so much around addiction in general, and particularly around physicians and addiction, and particularly around opiate addiction. In the midst of this opiate epidemic, which is killing more people every year than we lost in the entire Vietnam War, yeah. I thought it was important to come forward and be public about my story. So I wrote a memoir about my struggles with addiction and recovery mm -hmm. called free refills a doctor confronts his addiction free refills because doctors have limited access to medications we have free refills yeah. and unlimited stress the combination of which is the perfect storm for physicians and addiction and we have higher rates of addiction than the general population physicians also have the highest suicide rate of any profession and we're in a lot of trouble that's why a lot of physicians yeah. are leaving the profession and there's a huge pro projected physician shortage coming up yeah so um i came forward with my story and you know the way it relates to cannabis in a nutshell i mean i think it's uh, people would really enjoy the memoir but and people can find it on amazon if they just google free refills they either get my book or they get you know like I don't know, like McDonald's, we can get free refills <laughs> on their soda, but mostly my book comes up. But yeah. um, is that cannabis did help me a lot with the opiate withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. And, you know, this is, of course, not sanctioned by physician health services or the medical board. So I didn't make this a huge part of the book because I didn't want to get further crucified. I already yeah. got completely crucified. The book starts with the DEA and the state police raiding my office for some bad wow. prescriptions that I wrote. So, yeah. but again, I'm 11 years sober yeah. and. I'm, you know, working very hard on two issues, on physicians and addiction and on the cannabis issue. So that's like the memoir in a nutshell. Yeah. In terms of the cannabis stuff, I can honestly say that I've been working on it prenatally. I'm 52 <laughs> years old and I can honestly say I've been exposed to this issue for 53 years yeah. along with my twin brother in the womb because my father is uh, Dr. Lester Grinspoon, a very uh, well-regarded cannabis activist who mm -hmm. wrote the book Marijuana Reconsidered in 1971, which challenged the predominant sort of anti-cannabis climate that, you know, stemmed a lot from, you know, Harry Anslinger's uh, war on cannabis, 
which was fueled by racism and by uh, competing commercial interests, uh, not by health or safety at all. Yeah. And then continued by Richard Nixon and add to the racism and the competing commercial interests, you know, politics. He admitted that a lot of it was against the African-American community and against the anti-war, anti-Vietnam war left. Early, yeah. you know, one of his um, senior uh, staff members, Ehrlichman, admitted that. The good news is that my dad's book was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review. Uh, Richard Nixon actually um, called him a clown. And that's kind of a badge of honor because yeah. he hated my dad's book so much. But anyways, <laughs> my dad uh, started researching this. It's sort of a long story because his friend Carl Sagan was using it a lot. And my dad uh-huh. was sort of worried that his friend was sort of hurting himself. And then so he delved into, you know, Carl Sagan's the astronomer. Yep. I guess people sort of know that. And my dad <laughs> delved into the research and found out that it was like, it was sort of like an emperor wears no clothes type moment. Like a lot of the, my dad realized sort of, I guess, like Sanjay Gupta did recently, that like all the research was like done to prove that it was bad, but it wasn't like, you know, solid research yeah. because it was like determined to confirm a pre-existing conclusion yeah, that bias. was based on what the government wanted people to find. So my dad sort of stepped out of the box and started looking at the thousands year history of cannabis and sort of came to the conclusion that this like actually helps people medically, you know, it's not without harm, but it helps people, you know, with creativity, medically, interpersonally. So, um, you know, his book, I think it's fair to say was pretty instrumental in contributing to the nascent legalization movement back then in, in the 1970s, which thankfully is coming to fruition, uh, now in 2019. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you feel, you know, because obviously you've been you've been exposed to this before or I, I'm assuming before you kind of made formal decisions to get into the medical profession. I mean, do you feel like this is kind of completing your father's work in some way or, or you know, at least continuing it at a, at a major kind of transformation or a major um, change in phase in this? I mean, how, how, how does this how does this uh the current situation and what's going on in the you know cannabis world kind of fit for you in terms of the bigger the bigger story of your father and and the 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 work that he did? Well, first of all, he's still chugging away. Uh, he's ninety, so he's slowing down a lot, but he'll mm-hmm. be working on cannabis legalization till his last breath. I can <laughs> guarantee that. And you know. I've always been interested in this. I gave my senior presentation for my residency program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in the year 2000 on medical cannabis, and people thought I was nuts. So it's pretty amazing that I'm able to certify patients now and counsel patients Uh and physicians about this. I think that it's just my dad was right. He was like a visionary, and we're just all doing the right thing. And you know, it's really interesting. The patients are so far ahead of the doctors on this issue. You know, like 95% of patients believe that medical cannabis should be have access but the doctors you know most doctors support it theoretically but they aren't educated about it and the medical schools don't teach it or they teach they still teach the same yeah. 1950s like reefer madness nonsense in their textbooks like mm-hmm. the patients are so ahead of the doctors so um yeah it is continuing and furthering his work on the one hand on the other hand i'm a primary care doctor who you know is very focusing and concentrating on medical cannabis i feel like i'm practicing like really 
excellent medicine that everybody else is going to be practicing in 10 years. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll say a couple of things. So first, you know, thank you for writing the book. I think that, you know, I know that was a a vulnerable, vulnerable act. And I'm I'm sure that was not easy. But I think it's, you know, just crucial that we have these conversations and and get these issues out on the table in an open and honest way. And as as a member of a family who has many MD, PhDs, you know, both on the clinician and the patient side, like I I see the stress, you know, I have, uh, you know, direct family members who uh, have gone through years and years of medical school and research and PhDs and see the the personal and family impacts of all that. So I, I certainly, um, I see the, the stress that the medical professionals go through in that space. And, you know, I, I, I get that, you know, in terms of the, um, you know, the questions that really come up for me is how, so how do we change this? So if, if we're in a situation where the patients, uh, quote unquote, know more than the physicians, or at least have a more kind of balanced, open, curious willingness to kind of consider different viewpoints, uh, point of view, and physicians are, you know, I would say a little bit stuck in that the uh, institutions, uh, information around them, the structures around them are not, you know, serving them particularly well in this case in terms of the nature of, of cannabis, the, the research or the lack thereof, you know, understanding, you know, efficacy and use. How do we change the situation? What's what's the what are the things we can do to help change the informational dynamic, change the mindset around some of these issues on the medical side? Well, that's a really great question, and it's sort of complicated. It goes back to the one thing I forgot to mention about growing up, which is that my brother Danny, unfortunately, when I was eight, passed away from leukemia. Yeah. And the one thing that allowed him to eat and maintain food for the last two years of his life was medical cannabis. Mm-hmm. So I saw firsthand that it worked. Yeah. Sort of like it wasn't a randomized, controlled, blinded study like a lot of physicians hunger for. Yeah. But it was I saw it work in the way that you drop an apple and it falls yep. and you know gravity works. So I've been, you know, going through I've been a doctor for 25 years dealing with physicians, some of which very um, you know, are very convinced and with great conviction say medical cannabis doesn't work at all because that's what they've been taught. And like I know that it works. I've seen it work. I mean, yeah. like it's it is, it's inarguable that it works. So it's been you know, challenging for me personally, as well as professionally to deal with that mind frame. And how do we address it? I think, first of all, it's being addressed in general as people, um, you know, as physicians interact with their patients to the extent, you know, those physicians that can learn, listen, and are humble enough to kind of learn from their patients are are slowly starting to change their mind. And as it's legal medically, um, it's being brought more into the mainstream. It's not this like shady from the point of view of the physicians, illegal thing the patients are doing. It's actually something that they're doing legally and sanctioned by the state. Mm-hmm. So I think that's slowly starting to happen. I think there's advocacy to change what's taught in medical schools. The endocannabinoid system is, you know, one of the most important neurotransmitter systems in the in the body. Like There are tons of receptors in the brain and there are tons of receptors all over your immune system. That's the neurotransmitter system whereby cannabis works. It Mm -hmm. controls virtually everything in our body. And as of recently, it was only being taught in 
13% of medical schools. I mean, wow, that's absolutely really? crazy, absolutely insane that they wouldn't teach that. It just shows. And I think that like unwittingly, the physicians have been like sort of participating in this war on cannabis that Harry Anslinger started and that Richard Nixon accelerated by, you know, either just ignoring it or sort of mindlessly going along with the position that cannabis is evil with no medical benefit. You know, until my dad, I think my dad started it, but a lot of doctors still, my dad and other people, uh, not just my dad started to resist that. But I still think a lot of doctors sort of mindlessly like kind of collude with this, like, again, cannabis is illegal, not at all because of health, but because of racism, politics, politics, and competing commercial interests. You know, whenever there's a cannabis initiative, the people who contribute against it are the private prison industry, the alcohol industry, and big pharma, and oh, probably the, re- the rehab industry too. I mean, yeah. it's not about public health. It's about like competing commercial interests. So to get physicians up to speed, we need continuing medical education and tons of people are working on that. But I mentioned before that there are two separate narratives. There's a narrative from like the cannabis medical community. Mm-hmm where cannabis is a fairly benign, um, helpful material that treats a whole variety of conditions like pain, insomnia, and anxiety, fibromyalgia, Mm -hmm. PTSD. And then there's a narrative from the academic, from the addiction psychiatry community. You know, I just read, tried to read a paper yesterday. I tweeted about it, and then I stopped reading it after the second paragraph because it said 80% of the cannabis smoked within the last year um, was smoked by people with psychiatric disease. And I just like, this is so like completely off base. Like they pathologize somehow. It just seems to me like, and I don't want to overly generalize because yeah. a lot of my friends are addiction psychiatrists yep. and they do like absolutely phenomenal life-saving work on the opiate crisis. And yeah. it seems like with other drugs, but with cannabis, I just think a lot of them like, like don't understand recreational cannabis or medical cannabis and view it through a lens of pathology and So they're just two completely different narratives. And so if they're the ones like educating physicians, it's just never going to work because there's still going to be this like um, this like unbridgeable gap between like what the patients not only think, but like experience like a patient is using cannabis for sleep. It's working really well. And then what's the addiction psychiatrist going to do? Say, well, it doesn't work for sleep, so stop using it. Use Ambient. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. So I just think we have a lot of work to do teaching physicians about basic cannabis medicine in medical school and residency, providing continuing medical education to physicians who are practicing, and sort of like dealing with the fact that a whole swath of physicians that are supposedly the experts on this have this view of it as like pathological when a lot of what they think is pathological actually isn't pathological. And they think I'm completely pathological for saying this, (laughs) but I just, you know, I've been exposed to this from every angle. I've smoked acres of it. I have a lot of experience with it. I've dealt with thousands of people. I've treated people and I honestly, you know, this is going to get me shot, but I just, you know, it's such a benign substance for like an adult with no mm-hmm. other medical problems. I feel like these addiction psychiatrists, if they tried it, they'd actually realize it's not this scary substance that's going to, you take, they stop believing their own kind of self-reinforcing yeah. ideology about it. It's like you legs don't fall off if you take a puff. It's actually 
They should read <laughs> Carl Sagan's essay that was in my father's book. I've been tweeting that recently. Oh, about interesting. Carl, Carl Sagan's like smarter than all yep. of them and me and everybody else put together. And he wrote this beautiful essay in my father's book about what it does for him, how it enhances his creativity, how it works for him. And I just feel like they should eight either try yeah. cannabis yep. so they know what they're talking about or be read at least be open-minded enough to read an essay that explains what it does for people so that they understand why people use it you know just very briefly i know i'm giving a ted talk here but when i was at rehab you know for my opiate addiction they were like a drug is a drug is a drug that was mm. like their ideology and i'm like oh so cannabis is the same thing as methamphetamine and you know doug talbot the director of the talbot recovery center was mm -hmm. like yes a drug is a drug is a drug and i'm like oh my god i can't believe i'm dealing with this yeah um and i just think they need to understand like that there are positives and negatives and cannabis isn't in the same category as opiates or alcohol and not all highs are the same and this is just a, a very complex uh, substance in a way that other substances aren't do you think i mean i'm just kind of curious do you think that the current well, I mean, it seems like the the long term the long term change is you know the next generation, right? Like as we get a new generation of physicians in, you know, that are you know hopefully trained or or uh, you know go through their professional development with some some better data and some more balanced you know opinions or positions on some of this stuff. You know that will that will change. But in terms of the current physician base, I mean, it seems like there there's probably a group that just are not going to change, right? There's probably not much we can do for the people that are you know, have an opportunity or have a likelihood to change, you know, what, what would you, I mean, I guess you recommended that, you know, that they actually, you know, experience the, the, you know, cannabis in some way um, that they, you know, kind of keep an open mind, have some of these conversations, read some of this literature. Is there anything, I mean, in terms of, you know, really helping uh, convert more physicians into understanding this, this uh, substance better that you would recommend that they do in terms of, you know, what do you do over the next month to, to really start getting into this? Well, first of all, I think physicians are very hungry for good information and very open to changing. Yeah. You know, this is a recent study that some, a very, someone very intelligent from Children's Hospital did, where like 80% of oncologists were talking to their patients about medical cannabis because virtually all of their patients were asking them about medical cannabis, but only 30% of the oncologists felt comfortable or qualified to be having these conversations. So, you know, 50% of people were actually, of doctors were actually having this conversation, but didn't feel comfortable or that they had enough information. I mean, doctors are starving for this information. Yeah. Uh, the last time I spoke to a physician group about medical cannabis, I only got through like five slides because there were so many questions. People were so excited to actually talk about it and have their questions answered. So physicians are starving for this information, for good information. So I think, you know, having more of us available to speak about it. And um, I know that Tons of people are working on continuing medical education uh, units for mm -hmm. um, medical cannabis, like really good stuff. So I, I think that there's going to be a lot of really good information coming out in the next couple years. So I think that the huge um, the huge vacuum we have is going to be uh, narrowed pretty quickly. Yeah, and I hope so. I mean, I think you know, thinking from the industry point of view, and and working with a lot of companies who are developing various kind of cannabis uh, products and cannabis based services, and and kind of seeing the industry develop, I think you know it, it is going to happen. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, you know, both business and political to to make these things you know more and more available. I just I think that the more that we can 
you know, train up, get the medical, you know, community educated on board in the forefront uh, of all this, I think it's going to just, it's going to help everyone. I'm afraid if we don't, um, we're just going to continue to see a lot of these, you know, unfortunate problems. Um, and I think that's, um, you know, I think we have an opportunity and I'm whatever we can do to not miss that. We're going to hit time here. If people want to find out more about you, about uh, the book, about DFCR, what, what are the best ways to get some of this information? Oh, well, for me, they can just go to my website, which is petergrinspoon.com, you know, grin like smile, spoon like fork, petergrinspoon.com, and they could um, access my book or they could contact me directly with any questions. For um, DFCR, that's pretty easy too. It's just dfcr.org. It's a phenomenal organization, really just great doctors are associated with it. And we've got a very positive message. And I can't, I can't emphasize highly enough how much I respect the other doctors that are involved in this group and how important I think the mission is. Again, the slogan, I can't remember the exact slogan, but it's the essence of it is you don't have to be pro cannabis to think that it should be legal. I mean, legalization just makes so much sense. Like it should not be in the criminal justice realm. It's sort of like it got put in the wrong box and there's so many special interests trying to keep it there. It should be legalized and regulated much safer for society. And, you know, I'm sorry if it hurts the private prison industry, which is currently thriving, but you shouldn't (laughs) make money locking people in boxes anyways. Um, I'm sorry if it hurts the alcohol industry, but it's much safer to use cannabis and alcohol. I'm sorry if it hurts big pharma, but you know, it's safer to use a little bit of cannabis than to use Ambien. So I just think that this group DFCR is a phenomenal group and I'd love it if people checked out the website. Yeah. And I'll make sure that the, that the URLs uh, to DFCR and to your book and to your um, website are all in the show notes so people can click through and get those. Uh, Peter, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, uh, great story. I'm sure there's probably several episodes uh, that I do. <laughs> I'd love to do around <laughs> this in terms of the background. And yeah, we and just the try to scratch the surface. Yeah, I know, but it's important surface. And I, like I said, I think that this is a really, important conversation for anyone in the cannabis industry at any level is to really understand this facet of it because I think this is you know this this is really the root of many of the good historical you know kind of uh, history of cannabis in terms of you know the politics and regulation and the legal side of it understanding this and understanding where we are it's going to be important for anyone in this space so really appreciate it and um, I look forward to kind of staying in touch and, and seeing how this all plays out for all of us well really nice chatting uh, with you and thank you for having me on your uh, podcast. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.